I want to now invite all of our panelists to uh, to to join us um, and to begin a discussion. Um, I want to start with a question that I think um, we've we've all sort of touched on, but uh, maybe we're going to turn it to to you uh, and not to sort of continue where you left off, um, and then ask everyone else to sort of jump in. We we've we've spoken about all the different challenges that are happening with within healthcare as it relates to equity, diversity, inclusion, anti-racism. Um, I'm curious as to what's sort of the been been the biggest uh, hurdle that you've come up against as you've tried to make change and make this good trouble. And you all have a different perspective and are seeing in different places. So I'm curious as to what those, whether there's some similarities, where there are differences and sort of how we can address those as leaders within the healthcare system. So uh, I not want to turn to you, but then open up the floor to everyone. I, mean, I, think, I think that question probably has multiple parts. So I'll try to maybe just take a piece of it. Um, you know, I, I think, um, over the last course, last several years, there's been this this huge uh, uptake in in DEI or EDI type roles in organizations and in organizations really trying to carve out space and and show that they're making a difference. I think a lot of ways there have been some really good pieces of work. I think in some cases you have uh, these individuals who are brought onto an organization um, but are still working on their own in a silo and are not integrated into the organization's values and culture and, and frankly, strategic business plans. Those are sort of situations where, you know, you're set up for failure. And, and I think very, very unfortunate. I think there are definitely examples of the, of the opposite where, you know, you see individuals that are being supported and where um, inclusion is, is part of a strategy to, to really reach people, you know, whether it's your patients or customers or whoever it might be. And, and you can see the difference of those that are doing it well and those that, um, that have still a long way to go. Thanks, Nan, and just open the floor for anyone else who wants, who wants to jump in. Um, I think, you know, the biggest challenge is that, and again, having worked in the healthcare practice sector for a long time and now looking at education, I think what I see is the similarity across all of the different sectors I've been in. It's, I think it was referred to by our panelists, it's that invisibility, right? It shocks me, absolutely shocks me to recognize that there are people who still don't see that racism exists. They don't see the ongoing microaggressions or the barriers that are just so visible to us. Their vantage point, you know, if I go back to um, the equity slide, I think that was used in, in Gigi's presentation, right? If you are so tall, you have such privilege that you're always seeing over the fence. You don't see a barrier. You don't see the fence. You don't see any of that. And for those of us who are trying to do this work simply to make it visible, because when you are trying to make good trouble, the good trouble is seen as you're making it up. You are delusional. Nothing exists there that you're trying to challenge. And I think that invisibility is extremely difficult to navigate. And I think this is why when I think of what's happened, particularly since the pandemic, you know, the spotlight is there. And while it is so hard to see the spotlight, some of us are hopeful having been in this work for a very long time, that perhaps now, at least the invisibility is gone, and we can start to do some serious work. Thanks, Randy. Uh, Jackie, please. I just uh, wanted to briefly comment that I, I, I think because I've chosen those four levers and normalizing difference is one of them, it's an effort to 
spread the concept of universality and in an in a system that's actually not wired for that lens. And I, I, I have thought about the times I sat silent instead of commenting on a difference, a whole lived experience that was different to me accessing healthcare versus talking about that. And I think very fondly of an executive assistant I had many years ago who was describing me to a colleague that I was didn't know that I was going to meet at a national conference. And she described me in every way except that I was black. And when I heard her outside in the anti-office that she we shared kind of and asked her, you know, why didn't did it, why didn't you just say I'm I was black? Because I'm sure I'll be the only black person at this conference. She said, Oh, I didn't know if it was okay. So I just think about why wouldn't that be okay? And, and I just think about the fact that people, um, we need to bring our, our whole self, whatever that is, um, to the work environment, but particularly to the healthcare system. It sounds like a small thing, but I've recognized it's a big thing. Thanks so much, Jackie. Um, Angela. Um, may, and, and maybe I'm coming at this from a different perspective, is um, that currently I think what's at risk is a significant rollback. Um, I think we have seen um, in terms of giving, in terms of from picking up from Adnan's comment about all of the, the statements that have been made, the public statements, the hashtags, um, the affirmations about the presence and visibility um, of um, racism and how it has manifested itself. Um, I think, however, that we're seeing a kind of a receding of that um, tide in in that it's it's now becoming almost noise, I think, in certain spheres. And folks really want to go back to this thing called normal. And uh, and that that I think it 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 compels us to really be insistent um, that there should be no going back. And and it is a risky project. So to your comment then about the impact. The impact, I think, for me is is that we, for those for those who can take the risks, is that it compels us to take that risk, because I think to to lose ground now is is to um, is is to cement or encase uh, a, a next generation really. In, in continued exclusion and marginalized um, location in the healthcare system. So I think all of a sudden in this uh, moment, we, you know, this systems have found reporters who are black. We didn't know that so many existed. Um, commentators um, who are indigenous um, as respondents on national um, television. We have seen a, a, a space open up, and I think we need to lean in to keep that wedge open and to continue to push that wider because the forces, I believe, are seeking to close that. And and I and I think the risk for us is um, is that we we will have to risk being disliked for being insistent that that wedge not be removed and that in fact the space widens and the other piece i just want to comment on is i think there was a comment in the chat around that 
the, the widening of the space isn't just about the folks who are in clinical roles, nurses, physicians, um, is that we're also talking about administrators who are the folks who, who, who structure also the system, yeah? And, and where there is a, a great deal of invisible power around how the system gets organized and how policies get framed that enables us to live or not live the, the, the positive outcomes we want. So definitely agreeing that it will it is hard, it will continue to be hard, but definitely I think worthwhile that we continue to lean in and, you know, some of us, we realize now we're not as young as we need to be, and we have less time versus more time. And because of that, it brings a different level of urgency, and it also enables us to risk differently because we have, we're not, we, some of us have built a foundation that enables us, I think, to risk. And, and because of that, then I think we must because there are others who have not yet had that foundation to enable them to risk. Yeah. Just would like to uh, add some uh, comments to that. Because um, I've heard the path described as two ways, hard and harder. So the longer we wait, actually the harder things will get. And what I, what I see is that uh, we're getting increasing numbers of indigenous people, for example, in the health authorities, in the hospitals, but they're in distress uh, because they are surrounded by commentary and racism. And I think we need to really look at the idea of zero tolerance for any of this. And the speak up, say it culture needs to take over from uh, get, go along, get along. Uh, so I do think it will require a certain amount of unpopularity, but I think the other ways to think about it as, as really being that hard step that we need to take, uh, but it'll be harder if we don't. And the second comment is I think it's not only indigenous, it's not only minority people that are not getting served well, <laughs> I think that by serving uh, BIPOC populations better, they will actually develop better systems for everybody. Because there are access barriers, uh, you know, galore for rural and remote. Uh, there are things that are not acceptable uh, that go on. Uh, so anyway, I just want to add those. Uh, Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks so much, everyone. I want to reference the uh, the comment you, uh, comment that was in the chat that you referenced, uh, Angela, around um, not just the space being for clinicians, but we talked about students. Um, and 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 I want to turn to you, uh, Rainey, um, just to get your thoughts on maybe what some of the biggest challenges you're seeing in the education space, right? Because I think about now what's who are the, the folks that we're bringing into this space. Um, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges there? In the, if I think about the conversation we're having and look at reflect on it in the education space, it is this disconnect between what we are teaching and how we are behaving. You know, so if I look at our formal curricula, it is healthcare. So we have 
standards, we are talking about embedding cultural safety, we're talking about, you know, looking at uh, social justice, people have, there, there's wonderful theories, there's great concepts around, you know, how are we embedding post-colonial theory and have we thought about intersectionality? The language is there. And recently had an experience this past year where I was asked to come in and work with some colleagues around, can you help us look at our curriculum and how we change our curriculum? So education system is getting ready and willing to change their curriculum, their formal curriculum. What they're not having, not acknowledging or having a very hard time acknowledging depending on which part of the country and where you happen to be is the informal curriculum is who are the faculty? Do we have diverse faculty? What does that mean when you are the N of one or two, right? Because you are carrying that heavy burden. And for the students, the microaggressions that they may be, that they are not maybe, that they are experiencing in the classroom, in the seminar rooms, in the clinical world. And so we're teaching one thing. And because we have professional standards that tell you this is how you must be behaving. So it's like, do as we say, not as we do. And that I think is a real challenge uh, because it goes back to then, you know, the, the racism is all, but don't, but we're teaching post-colonialism stuff. We're teaching, you know, uh, all of the social justice, we're teaching equity, we're teaching all of this, but we're still hiding what's really happening. Thanks, Randy. Um, and if anyone else wants to talk, uh, jump in around, um, you know, the, the the conversation of it being expanded as aside of just the clinicians that we're teaching and the expansion next year. Yes, I'm finished, Adnan, and then Jackie. I'll just throw in a quick, quick example, maybe to exemplify what uh, Ronnie was talking about. I think we all, many of us saw it in fairly recently Queen's University, they had essentially written into the um, in early 1900s, um, their medical school had a, had a ban on, on black students. And that ban was only formally repealed, I think only a couple of years ago. So this is sort of this, um, you know, this, this challenge between what we're saying and preaching and what's actually embedded in, in our systems. Um, but I'll, I'll leave it there and then let Jackie take over. I, I just, uh, listening to you, Rani, I just wanted to comment that, um, you know, I, I don't know how easy it is to, to, to teach people what they ought to have learned by the age of seven. And I don't know how effective it is to have talk without action and consequence. So I do believe that um, there's more there's more gained by actually requiring um, supporting supporting change through education and, and understanding and learning, but but drawing a line for which action with respect to that understanding is actually um, not without consequence. I would just. Uh, pick that pick up on that for me and, and and definitely strong agreement around accountability and um you know i think we have a, a colleague um camille orridge in the room um health leader in many spaces and um and often was the only um, black woman in many of those spaces um asserting issues of uh, of equity and, and I, I think the, the, the question um, of accountability and 
some demands, I think, and being being be, be, being unapologetic um, to the to the healthcare systems as they plan recovery strategy to the to, to, to the academic um, spaces as they plan their recovery efforts as they plan their response to anti-black and anti-indigenous racism is that there are um, explicit actions but that's also twinned with accountability and reporting so it's not just accountability within the confines of their institution, but it's public accountability to, to us. Because when those statements were made that said we are aligned with resisting anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism, those were public statements because there was great currency and there is great currency in making that public declaration. And similarly, I think we need to twin the public accountability back in the same way, twinned to tangible actions. Um, so that's just one strategy that I would recommend um, for those of us who are sitting in various organizational spaces who have made those declarations to also have them twin and a, a public accountability back with the actions that they have taken in their respective organizations and domains um, to to, to, to address and redress um, these sites of inequalities. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I would uh, say is that, um, that maybe we look at certain niches of uh, development. And I would say uh, one example is if you're looking at ways that the system is changing, there's a, there's a real shift in primary care and primary care models uh, and the shift to community-based primary care models that are that are much more inclusive and, um, and not necessarily physician driven, but team driven. Uh, and I would say include uh, nurses, midwives, uh, but also folks that work on determinants of health, which can be uh, most important. So, so it may be that uh, we put a focal point on some of those uh, delivery elements that are really safe havens uh, for indigenous, and I've seen them for French, for other communities. Uh, and, and this may be a way to engage in some real practical ways of uh, having real system ownership, even if it's at the smaller levels. Then I think those systems can also then impact the hospital systems where there are discharges, where there's uh, interplay with primary care. So, uh, so I think it's important to look at those strategic opportunities and growing uh, areas of innovation, because uh, I think those are areas where we can have a real strong influence and can demand some of that accountability uh, back to communities for some of those basic services. Thank you, Richard. Go ahead, Jackie, please. I just wanted, uh, picking up on that, Richard, a really important, that accountability also can't just be defined in the ways in which they've traditionally been defined. I think about, um, you know, creating spaces at tables to pick up on your earlier point in your opening comments that if everyone at the table looks exactly the same, then we would be making assumptions about what it takes for someone who is 
differently abled or someone who is indigenous or someone who is black or someone who is whatever to walk through our doors. But if we are creating the accountabilities and the access points and the standards and, and of the evaluation metrics with those individuals at the table, then we're not actually measuring, I doubt very much we'll be measuring the things we've been measuring in the past. So I, I just think it's critical that we make no assumptions about that evaluation metric, metrics, those evaluation metrics that Angela referenced. It's not just how many black people did you see today, <laughs> you know, or how many leaders look like uh, us at the table. It's, you know, once you're at the table, can you eat the food, you know? Thanks so much, Jackie. Um, um, completely agree with you there. And and, and uh, I, I want to expand on that because there's a couple of questions that sort of speak to that within the Q&A um, that speak to um, how to make organizations um, or the importance of making organizations more inclusive, right? Uh, and, and sort of speaks to the, to the notion of representation. One, one of the questions sort of reads, as we, as we think about uh, the, the importance of healthcare workers seeing people that represent us in, in leadership positions, um, can you talk about the importance and the impact of healthcare uh, users um, and the public in seeing diverse leadership too, not just in sort of the big cities, but in smaller communities as well? I want to start off with a, with an example I'm pretty proud of, and and Angela was I was working on this too with the Parktail Queen West. Um, this summer, that was one of the the major um, pillars of the approach for the the vaccination outreach in uh, sort of the the West Toronto area. Um, you know, when in designing these vaccination clinics for the community, it was critically important that. Um, we had, you know, op opportunities for for our staff members and, and volunteers, everyone, um, to be able to be reflective of the community, uh, to to make it as low barrier as possible, so that we can make make these spaces that, you know, frankly, at that point in time, it's it's scary, it's very frightening, you know, the population still getting vaccinated. Um, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty, but trying to make these spaces as 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 um, approachable as possible. And part of that was just making sure that you know the staff, the registration people, the volunteers, the vaccinators, um, that the public coming through those clinics could see themselves in these people, and um, you know be able to have have something put at ease because there's this comfort and familiarity um, it was a huge difference and there were a lot of incredible other um, other organizations in the city and, and nationwide doing very similar things i think um for me uh, to do the work and um to address the issue of um, what happens inside your organization is is to is to undo the, the thinking that how we have done things is how we need to continue to do things. We just need to bring more people of color to the table and more indigenous people into the frame. Um, and, and, and for me, it's really my, my, my thinking and my orientation is we need to just re radically reimagine how that table has been constructed because how the structures have um, been erected 
have not enabled um, the kind of um, outcomes, positive outcomes that we want for BIPOC populations. So structurally, the table is flawed. And therefore, the, 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 the work that needs to happen for me is to, to change the structure, to change the structures of how we do engagement, to change the structure of how we do outreach, to change the structure of how we plan, because, uh, and, and, I, and I remember so vividly in one of those vaccine leadership tables where a hospital CEO, you know, quite frankly, just said, you know, we need to be efficient. And, you know, you're asking us to pick up this equity piece of the work and it will make the process inefficient. And my refrain has been, tell me how this efficient system has served me and my people well, like it has not. So it means for me a radical rethink um, of how we actually set up new systems. And as leaders in this space, in this over 200 folks who are in the room, it's really asking you to, to not tinker, but to do a rethink. Yeah, it's to really do a rethink. And it's asking you not to just focus on representation, because I, you know, I, you know, I, I always go back and it's a throwback. You know, I go back to my sister Condoleezza Rice, um, who, you know, was Secretary of State in George Bush's administration. And I love Condi, Condi's bright. I would sit and want to have a conversation with Condoleezza Rice, but we certainly do not share the same politic. So, so we need to also be mindful about pure representation because you can have representation and bring folks who have no desire to reimagine the table, only wanting a seat at the same table, the same way that it's structured. That will not produce the equitable outcomes that I think we desire. So I think that we need to have representation twinned with a politic about social change with a politic that is twinned to commitment around equity and addressing structural inequality. And, and I think at times our, our current um, institutions are short-sighted, so to speak, and think only about having more diversity at the table and think that that alone is the change. So we just, you know, kind of throw that in the mix. I don't even know what to say after that because I, I think we're all going to register for um, a seminar yeah. by by Angela. <laughs> I mean, it, you couldn't be more spot on, Angela. And it, it's interesting. I, I I had a conversation with someone, a great human being here in London uh, a week ago, who was uh, essentially providing me caution about handing over monies to a segment of our population to, to, for them to create the pathway in and, and how, you know, what if this doesn't work and what if that doesn't work? And all I could say was what I know, not being of that community is I don't know, but what I absolutely know is what has happened so far has not worked. 
So this is not about tweaking the imperfect, the imperfect existence that exists today. This is about every notion that exists having to be literally turned on its head because the door is only partially open. And if we're here to serve everyone, that's not what this door was designed to do. And we just have to own that and understand that and move forward. It isn't going to happen without naming that fact. And it isn't going to happen without people understanding that the goal here is to eliminate the current state, the current status of racism and health inequity. It's to eliminate it, not tweak it. Thank you, Jackie. I, uh, Richard, I saw you off mute. Wait. Yeah, I think there's um, that's kind of a tough, uh, tough balance. And I, and I guess uh, I will always advocate for more indigenous, more, uh, more black people in the system. So, and I think that that in itself, though, I think is not totally the answer. Uh, I think that's that's the safe uh, comment because I because I do see where uh, they will hire indigenous VPs and then they'll say, okay, you handle all the Indian issues. Well, that's that's setting that person up. Uh, to um, to really not be able to do that job, or they put in navigators that are too far down the system, and really have no power uh, to really influence uh, improved services within the system, then that person is also setting being set up to fail. So I think it's it's something that needs to be measured, uh, and I think it's something that we need to continue to really just push for and demand. Because uh, I do think um, some of the additional employ employment will make change, uh, but I think it's just uh, it's important to have a really uh, thoughtful approach to that, uh, and not be satisfied with uh, one or two people as 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 their outcome. Spot on, Richard. I know um, Angela's hand was up, and then I'm going to turn to you, Randy. Is that okay? So, so, so one, and I don't want to, 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 to lose this thread, but Jackie, um, you said something that, 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 that tickled this for me. And this is about um, the, 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 that we need to acknowledge the, the differential weight on BIPOC staff um, and BIPOC leaders. And, I don't, and, 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 and I'm not just talking about people with positional power, I'm talking about BIPOC folks, wherever they are in the system, because we're not afforded the luxury of failure. No. And we know that um, when we seek to make change and when we seek to disrupt, is that we will learn from failure. So there will be many points of failure along the journey um, to achieving um, equity and equitable outcomes, but that that weight of failure isn't felt equally and the burden of that and the impact and the implications for that isn't equitable. So, so as much as we are, and I, I am talking about risk, I also don't want to, 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 to be naive in, um, in having folks not appreciate that there's a differential impact for racialized and BIPOC and indigenous leaders 
who are seen as having failed at something. So to the comment that Jackie offered around that group being offered, given some resources to lead and co-develop and co-design um, their own strategy, is if that fails, is that is Jackie's failure as a black leader in the system. Um, it's not a learning and teachable moment. <laughs> and that that as, as leaders in this room, that I think, we also need to think differently about um, the role of um, the role of failure, the role of test and change, and how that impacts us differentially, and how we also balance for that. So our boards. So for leadership, where you have boards who have brought leader, you know, BIPOC leaders to the table, is those boards need to not run away from their BIPOC leader the first moment something does not go right. Um, because, um, I, because I think we have seen that happen time and time again, and I just didn't want to lose that as we also go back home to have um, these conversations and develop strategies. Thanks, Angela. And that's, I mean, to me, the, the conversation about representation and what you're saying is so aligned, right? So representation matters but representation is not sufficient, right? Representation without any power to make a change is ridiculous, is probably the word that comes to mind, because as you've just said, it adds, there's always the added burden of whatever you do as a BIPOC leader, you are under greater scrutiny. There are expectations that it'll be perfect. And to your point about when we look at failure, People look for what didn't go wrong, what did not go right, not what went right. In any strategy that you look at implementing, there are successes, but it's often what gets scrutinized and what gets spotlighted, right? So that is a burden. Um, and I think without any commitment and support, to actually achieve that outcome or that change. So often we go into this, we bring the representation, but we have very, very little clarity of outcome and often no conversation about what will it take to achieve that. So what are the resources? What is the power? What is the opportunity to influence and what are the supports to actually achieve that outcome? We don't have that conversation. We will bring you in and then you will figure it out but so it is a bit of a, and it's hard. I mean, I, you know, I've been long enough, you know, we, we've known each other a long time, I mean, not to become cynical, but it's very easy to get set up. And I think this is where that, what I was trying to highlight is that, that recognition, that mentorship, that support is so important to look at how to help navigate, but exactly what you're saying is how to help people reframe their own views when they're so quick to see the failure and not the success. Right? When they're so quick to see that it took longer, but they don't recognize what the change relationships and what it will do for future work. So I'll pause there because I could go on on my soapbox <laughs> and my chat this morning. All right. So I want to give some space to, to um, our, 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 our wonderful organizer, um, uh, Yinka, who did a fantastic job pulling this panel together um, and pulling this event together. Thanks, Ryan, and thanks everyone for your exceptional reflections and presentations today. 
Within today's discussion, we have heard from our exceptional speakers on the importance of advancing meaningful change in diversity, equity, and inclusion and leadership. Within the keynote, Dr. Osler highlighted we're in a time of reckoning. It is a time to examine our systems and structures we live and work in. Rani reflected on the importance of focusing on access, experiences, mentorship, and sponsorship. Angela's remarks emphasize everything we do must be rooted in awareness in how the past impacts the present and that it's our moral imperity and opportunity to make good trouble. Richard reflected on racism as a determinant of health and within indigenous racism, it is important to note how racism is addressed within current systems and the power imbalances that permeate. Further, there is an opportunity for us to look at creative disruption and the need to leap frog forward. I appreciate the reflections and lived experience shared by Jackie in relation to being the only one or one of a few in a space, as well as compartmentalizing our experiences and the focus on ex excellence. I resonate with the reflection that change is hard and never easy and the guidance that she provided on the four levers to advance systemic racism. It is inspiring to learn about the leadership Adnan has been sharing and doing in relation to building a community through the emergence of the BIPOC Health Leadership Network. In closing, it is our hope that today's discussion has provided a call to action for you to reflect, listen, learn, rethink, and most importantly, act. Act to address barriers, change the structures, and advance change. Special thanks to Longwoods and Matt and Rebecca for convening this space and discussion today, Ryan for moderating the panel, to our speakers, sponsors, and for the supports, and for everyone who has participated within today's event and discussion. Thank you.